your Bibles and turn to me, if you would please, to the book of Acts, chapter 22. Acts 22 is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Uh, we are continuing our walk through this book, Acts 22. While you're turning there, uh, before we look into the, the scriptures this morning, we're going to pray together. We're going to pray for Scott as he goes on Thursday. Uh, we're also going to pray for him because at the end of this week, his grandmother had a very significant stroke, a massive stroke and is not expected to uh, recover from it. So uh, he has spent a great deal of time keeping vigil at the hospital with her. So um, let's pray for uh, Scott and the rest of the Harrisons today, shall we? Oh, great God, we come before you this morning on behalf of our friend and our brother Scott, and we are thankful to you uh, for him. Lord, we, our prayer for him is uh, uh, varied this week because of the... Um, varying pressures that are uh, upon him and upon his family. Lord, we would think this morning of his grandmother. Uh, she has uh, lived for 90 years and appears to be um, quite clearly here uh, at the end of her life. Lord, I pray for uh, Scott as he um, seeks to grieve and as he seeks to uh, comfort and care for his family uh, during this time. Uh, Father, we pray for his aunts and his uncles and his cousins as they all seek to um, um, meet together and, and cooperate together in this uh, uh, period of loss. Um, Lord, we know that, that tensions can rise in families and struggles can come, and we pray that you would um, be faithful and that you would enable Scott to speak Peaceful words, careful words, uh, comforting words. Um, I pray that this would be a moment in time when the direction of his family is focused on Jesus Christ. Help Scott by the way he grieves. His trust that it, it's what we just sang would be true. That his trust in, would be in you alone and that he would look to you completely. Um, Help that to be true in his life. Father, he's also trying to prepare and pack to go to Nigeria. How thankful we are to you for this opportunity. You commanded us, Lord Jesus, to be world-thinking world followers of you. You told us to think about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And uh, we are thankful to you uh, that Scott and Sam are going to be able to go to Nigeria this week. What a wonderful opportunity this is. We pray for them as they go. Uh, help them to be like the Apostle Paul who uh, wrote to the Corinthians. He said, I have come and I am a worker together for your joy. And we pray that Scott and Sam would, would be workers together for the joy of these students and faculty members that they will meet. Um, uh, joy found in Jesus Christ. Uh, give them clarity as they teach. Um, we pray that you would oversee, uh, that, that you would work to keep them safe in this endeavor. Um, there is not a, a crowd, a, a, a bullet, a, a, a situation in the world that is outside of your control. And, and we pray that you would um, guard Scott and Sam as they go. Please be with Jess and Angela and their children. Uh, they will, I'm sure, with some anxiety, send their uh, husbands and fathers uh, across the ocean. Uh, we pray that this would be a week in which they remember that you are a shield and a very great reward. 
Uh, Lord, you are also in charge of staples and filing and postage. So we ask that you would uh, return Scott's uh, visa to him and his passport so that he can go uh, on Thursday. You are good to us. Your plans for us are better than the plans that we make ourselves. That's why our trust is in you, and we pray that you would uphold Scott as he goes. And we pray these things together in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen. So we're walking through the book of Acts. We've been at it for several months. And one of the things that I hope you have learned during this time is that there is no such thing as a golden age for the church. Sometimes we think about that, that, that we think that these early days, oh, if I ever there was a time to be a Christian, this was it. Because, you know, in the early days, they all loved each other. And they didn't have any theological controversies. And uh, there was never any pressure or any problems on the church. It was the golden age, nothing but happiness and joy and sunshine and unicorns. Uh, but actually, it has never been that way. Oh, hasn't the book of Acts taught us that? From the very beginning? From the very beginning, it seems that Christ's followers, they must have felt sometimes like they were trying to chop wood with butter knives. Um, they, they, they had the Holy Spirit still empowering them, but they were in a world of opposition. Uh, there was a man that I want to tell you about. He actually lived a uh, hundred years. He, he was born about 30 years after these events that we're reading in Acts 22 took place. And uh, he died in A.D. 160. Uh, when he was a young man, his name is Polycarp. It's an unusual name, isn't it? Polycarp. I don't recommend that for your child. It's written. So uh, then, um, anyway, uh, Polycarp, when he was a young man, he became a follower of Christ and actually was discipled by the elderly Apostle John. When he died in A.D. 160, he was one of the last living people who had a memory of the uh, apostles, of meeting with the original twelve. Well, in A.D. 160, Polycarp was arrested. He was hiding. Uh, the story is told in a book about him. It's called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. I'm, I'm going to read from it in a minute. It's a useful book, but sometimes it gets a little uh, magical, a little strange. Polycarp was a bishop. He was a bishop in the church in Smyrna. He was hiding during this time of rather fierce persecution. He was betrayed, and soldiers came to his house to arrest him. Uh, they knocked on the door. They barged in the house. They found when they walked in there an 86-year-old man did not appear to be much of a threat. The threat level decreased when Polycarp greeted them and said, Welcome to my home. Would you like to eat? And he fed them dinner, soldiers. Then he said, can, Would you mind before uh, taking me, can, we, can I pray for a little bit? Two hours he spent in prayer. The soldiers, as they were taking him out, they testified. They said, What threat could this man possibly show to the Roman Empire? Well, uh, they took him to the proconsul who pushed him out into a stadium. And here's where I'm going to start reading here. The proconsul, the Roman um, authority, asked him whether he was Polycarp. On hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, Down with the atheists. Now, just a note here. In these days, Christians were accused of being atheists because Christians did not have statues of their gods. Everybody else worshipped in a Roman temple, a Greek temple, and they had a statue. Where's your God? I can point to him. He's right there, they would say, or she's right there. Well, the Christians obviously did not have statues, so they were accused of being atheists. Repent and say, down with the atheists. 
Polycarp, I'll keep reading here. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them said, down with the atheists. (laughs) They're the ones who worship the false gods. They don't worship the God of the Bible. They're the atheists, if there's anybody. That's not what the proconsul wanted him to say, do. So, um, swear, I'll keep going, urge the proconsul, reproach Christ and I will set you free. And here's what Polycarp said. This line has made him famous. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? I have wild animals here, the proconsul said. I will throw you to them if you do not call, repent. Call them, Polycarp replied. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good and to turn to what is evil. I will be glad, though, to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why are you waiting? Bring on whatever you want. Eighty-six years have I served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Where do you get that sort of moxie? That attitude of, of fight here. I think there's a good chance that, that Polycarp got it from reading some of these pages that are open before us. Here we find the Apostle Paul in second of five trials that he's going to endure in the last seven chapters of the book of Acts. We've moved from Paul the traveling church planter to Paul the traveling prisoner. And in every one of these trials, Paul emerges as a faithful representative of Jesus Christ. And I'm interested in answering that question today. How did he do that? How did he emerge that way? This is, as I mentioned last week, a seven-chapter section of Acts uh, with overlapping themes. We're going to see several of them. We're going to learn about God's providence. We're going to talk more about the relationship between the church and the state. Actually, that was an emphasis last week. We're going to talk about the conflict between Judaism and, and Christianity. Today I want to talk about Paul's attitude. How did he endure these trials with such clarity of purpose? And, and the truth be told is with greater importance, I want to know from you how you endure. What is it about following Jesus Christ that makes a person respond to suffering like this? One of the reasons that, that, that Christianity grew like it did in Polycarp's day is people who were not followers of Christ saw how these Christians responded to being arrested and tried and beaten and martyred and burned and thrown to the animals. What do you do when you are in hot water? I wonder if the path that you are following when you are sick or when you're shunned or when you're bereaved or uh, when you're mocked. I wonder if it's a path that's worth following. If other people seeing how you respond to that would want to follow on that same path. Or if they'd want to follow the same Jesus that you follow on that path. Well, uh, let's read the text. See what Paul did and then see what we can learn from it. Look with me here at Acts 22 starting in verse 30. That's where I want to start reading here. I'll read down through chapter 23, verse 11. For those of you who were here last week, it's much shorter than last week, which is good. The commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. 
So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priests and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this, the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the assembly was divided. Here's why. Verse 8. The Sadducees say there's no resurrection and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. There was a great uproar. And some of the teachers of the law who were Pharisees stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What does a follower of Christ do when he is in hot water? Let's talk about first about what we don't do, what we do not do. First, we don't lash out. We don't lash out. We don't respond with anger, with bitterness, with hostility. These are not part of the playbook for followers of Jesus. Paul starts down that path a little bit, and then he he backs off. I wonder if you think that what he did was right, or if he should have kept going down that path. It's a little puzzling. Let let me try to set the stage here for you. So um, the passage starts with a Roman commander, Claudius Lysias is his name, and he's arrested Paul, except he's not quite sure why he's arrested Paul. (laughs) Well, on the one hand, everybody in Jerusalem, it seems, it feels like to him, is calling out for Paul to be executed, to be killed. And on the other hand, he's a Roman citizen. And, and Roman citizens deserve privileges and rights. So the commander doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what charges to bring against Paul. So he, he gathers the Sanhedrin together, the Sanhedrin, the highest court in Palestine. The Romans, of course, officially ruled the country, but even before the Romans got there, there was this body, the Sanhedrin. Seventy-one men sat on the Sanhedrin, and they had um, legislative and judicial power in Palestine. They were there before the Romans, and the Romans let them continue their work with some limitations on it. Well, Claudius summons them for what appears to be a pre-trial hearing. Should Paul be on trial? Why, why, what is the issue here with Paul? So the testimony starts in verse, uh, chapter 23, verse 1. And Paul says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God and all good conscience to this day. Paul's accountability to his conscience is very important to him. Um, look over with me just quickly at Acts 24, verse 16. Look what it says there. Acts 24, 16. So I strive always 
to keep my conscience clear before God and man. He brings this up several times. Conscience is very important to Paul. Paul wants, he's calling his conscience as his witness. That Paul always, his whole life, has done what he thought was the right thing to do. Before he met Jesus, he was severely wrong about what the right thing to do was. But he always followed his conscience. He always did what was right. Well, this infuriates the high priest. The high priest's name is Ananias. Not any of the, there is a high priest in the Bible who's involved in Jesus' trial. That's Annas, not the same person as Ananias. Well, Ananias has been a high priest for about eight or nine years, and he's a vile man. Jewish historians talk about Ananias. He was greedy. He was violent. He was just a, an oily human being. And he orders that Paul be struck in the mouth. Now, how would you say these words in verse 3? <laughs> if you were hit in your trial. Well, Paul speaks. God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. You hypocrite. God is going to get you. Strident here. That Hypocrisy is the issue, isn't it? Um, Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel talked about whitewashed walls. Jesus did too. Actually, whitewashed tombs. But in Ezekiel's day, whitewashed wall was a wall that, that you wanted to make look good, but actually was no good in terms of defending yourself from attackers. You're a hypocrite. You look good on the outside, but you don't really care about the law. You're here to judge me according to the law, and yet you break the law yourself. Now, is it okay for Paul to call him out like that? Is this okay, what Paul did? Jesus did something very similar during his trial. Look, I wrote some verses on those uh, sheets in your bulletin from John 18. Look, look at it during Jesus' trial. Meanwhile, the high priest, again, a different man, questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So is it okay? Is it okay for Paul to protest this way? Well, verse 4 it seems like he backs down here a little bit, doesn't it? Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was a high priest. Well, here's one of the mysteries of this, of this text. And this, our temptation will be to be lost in this mystery. Here it is. How in the world is it that Paul didn't know he was the high priest? I mean, how is that possible? Right? Paul's been in the Sanhedrin before. He, he knew how they sat, and, and, and the high priest had his own, his own special place where he sat. How, if you go into the Congress, if you walk into the House of Representatives, you can tell where the speaker is sitting. Like the, the layout of the room is pretty clear. That's an important guy sitting up there. How did Paul not know that? Well, I don't know the answer to the question. There's a lot of suggestions. Some people think that Paul just this is an expression of Paul's poor eyesight. It seems like in the Bible that he had poor eyesight and maybe it kept him from recognizing him. Maybe. 
Maybe he's been gone from Jerusalem so long he just has no idea. Maybe the, the meeting was called so hastily that Ananias didn't have time to put on all the official fancy robes of the high priest, so he's wearing regular clothes, maybe. I, I, I don't know. But to take the text at its word and notice Paul seems to back off here a little bit. Now, some people have thought that maybe Paul was being sarcastic, that, that Paul is, is saying, oh, pfft. How, how can I tell that you're the high priest if you're breaking the law like that? I have no idea. I, as much as I appreciate good sarcasm, um, I don't think that Paul would bring Exodus 22 into this like he does if he was being sarcastic. When he says, remember what the law says, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. I don't think so. When pressed here, Paul doesn't lash out. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't return insults. That's our natural response, isn't it? Paul's angry. He was, he was angry because he was being treated so unjustly. So lashing out and being uh, angry and harboring bitterness is the natural response of people who are being mistreated and who have the heart conviction that there was no one, not even God himself, who is in control or trustworthy in the midst of this situation. Lashing out, this bitterness comes from this conviction, I'm in trouble and there's no one else who's going to help me. There's no one else who's going to defend me. There's no one else who is trustworthy in the midst of this situation. It is a faithless response. There's nothing supernatural, nothing spiritual about this sort of lashing out. In fact, it's a sign of unbelief, not, not faith. There's, there's repeated warnings about this in the Bible, none of them better than in 1 Peter 2. Again, I wrote this verses down from 1 Peter 2, verse 21. It says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. A quote from Isaiah 53. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, here it is, the faith that comes in, that in, empowers this not lashing out. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Retaliation, insults, threats, bitterness, it's the opposite of faith. We just have great confidence. The reason we don't lash out, the reason we don't harbor bitterness, the reason we can forgive is because God will make it right and we're trusting him. So we don't lash out. That's one thing not to do. Now, second, what else do we not do? Uh, we do not fear. We do not fear. When the Lord Jesus appears to, to Paul in verse 11, the first thing he says in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage. Jesus said that, those lines often in the New Testament. It's a, there's a trio of stories in the book of Matthew, some of my favorite stories in the Gospels. One day a group of men brought a friend who was paralyzed to Jesus hoping that Jesus would heal him. Can you imagine, here he comes, he's standing, he's, he's laying there, or maybe still being carried in front of the healer, Jesus the healer. And what was he thinking at that point in time? Wouldn't, it be a, wouldn't you have a little bit of a mix of great hope, but then you want to guard yourself against, against disappointment? And he 
really help me? Will he really help me? Will he find something in me that will disqualify me uh, from being healed by him? Is this really going to work? I hope this is going to work. What if it doesn't? What, how am I life, how's my life going to change? All these things racing through his mind. And Jesus looks at him and says, oh, take courage. Take heart. Later, there's this scene where Jesus is walking through a very crowded area. People are just pressing in. There's people everywhere. It's like the mall at Christmas. I mean, they're just all over. And there's this woman who has had this physical problem for a long time. And she's ashamed. She's embarrassed. She's impoverished. She thinks to herself that if I could just touch Jesus' robe, then he'll heal me and I'll be okay. So she does. She sneaks through the crowd, touches him, and he stops, and he calls her out. What would you be thinking at this moment in time? I'm in big trouble. What's Jesus going to do? I broke this cultural taboo, this religious taboo, by touching him in public. Is he going to shame me even more? Is he going to take away the healing that I just experienced? Is he going to yell at me? What is going to happen? And Jesus looks at her and says, oh, woman, take courage. Uh, uh, there's a, a few chapters later, he's walking. <laughs> the disciples are in this boat, and they're going across the sea, and Jesus comes to them walking on the water, which is not something you see every day. They're afraid. It's a ghost. It's a ghost. Ah, what's going to happen to us? Jesus says, oh, don't worry. Take courage. Take courage. How is it that every moment, Jesus doesn't say that to everybody. He, he says other things. How is it that at every moment, in so many diverse situations, Jesus steps in and he sees the fears that are gripping people's minds and their hearts, and he knows exactly what to say to allay them? Can't you see how trustworthy he is? I'm so glad these verses are here. Uh, these words are here in verse 11. Take courage. Was Paul afraid? How can that be? I'm glad they're here because sometimes. Sometimes we give the impression to one another, I hope I don't do this. I'm sure I have at various times. But we give the impression to one another that if you're really trusting Jesus or if you really love the gospel or if you really have confidence in the Bible, that, that you just won't ever be afraid or you won't ever be worried or you won't ever be frustrated or discouraged or depressed. We give people that impression sometimes, don't we, that if, if you really love Jesus, you wouldn't have these problems? It's not true. The difference between a Christian and, an, and someone who's not a follower of Christ, the difference between those two is not the, the arrival in their minds and hearts in fearful situations of worry or uh, sorrowful situations of, of grief or of depression or discouragement. The, the difference between those two people is not the presence of those responses, those attitudes, those feelings. The difference between a follower of Christ and someone who's not a follower of Christ in those situations is how they respond to the worry and the fear and the discouragement and the depression that comes. Whether they, as Martin Lloyd-Jones said, talk to themselves or listen to themselves. There's a difference, isn't there? You can listen to yourself a lot. In fact, you are tempted often to listen to yourself as you rehearse in your mind all the things that you should be worried about or all the things that you should be afraid of or all the, things that, all the reasons you have to be dis depressed and discouraged. You're inclined to listen to yourself a lot instead of talking to yourself. Like David. Oh, my soul, why are you so downcast? Don't be downcast. Put your hope in God. 
talk to yourself rather than listen to yourself. That's, that's what distinguishes someone who's a follower of Christ from someone who's not a follower of Christ in fearful, bleak, broken circumstances. Paul's afraid. What's he afraid of? I wonder if he's a little bit more disheartened than, than, than afraid. Paul has no chance of getting a fair trial in Jerusalem. He's just seen that. If during your opening arguments of your trial, someone hits you in the mouth, you do not have a chance of getting a fair trial. So he's disheartened about this. He's thinking about Rome. He's thinking about Spain. He wants to go to both of those places. What's going to happen to him? Is he going to die in prison? Is the only place he's ever going to be safe is in prison? The Romans keeping him from the Jewish crowd? Are they going to plot against him? What's going to happen to his plans? What, what he hopes to accomplish? Everyone comes to moments like this in life when you turn to your friend and you ask this, this question with despair. Everybody said it. What do we do now? What do we do now? And when you don't have an answer, it sets you up for this sort of fear. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. Let's talk about the other side here. So we've talked about what we don't do. We don't lash out. We don't respond with fear. Let's talk about what a follower of Christ does when they find themselves, what, they sh- what we ought to do, what the Bible calls us to do in the midst of hot water. Two things. First, renew your focus on the gospel. Renew your focus on the gospel. This is something that we talked about last week. This is Paul here. How does Paul respond? Wherever he was, whatever opportunities he had, he was there to represent Jesus. And he does it in the Sanhedrin, and this is how he does it. Now, there's some difficulty here in understanding what happens in verse 6 and following. There's a couple different uh, uh, understandings of what's happening. Here's one. I don't think it's right. I'll tell you why. Although there's certain things that are attractive about it. So Paul realizes here, he gets hit in the mouth. He's not going to get a fair trial. So he looks around, and he he thinks to himself, oh, there's there's some Sanhedrin. There's Pharisees. And there's Sadducees here. He's not going to get a fair trial. And, and actually there's only one person in the room who it matters. Who matters. It's that Roman commander. The Roman commander has ultimate authority. Maybe he should try to appeal to the Roman commander. Maybe what he should do. This is one interpretation. Is See the Sadducees. They don't believe in bodily resurrection. Like the Pharisees do. They don't believe in intermediate spirits. Like the uh, Pharisees do. And they're both here. Maybe, maybe what Paul should do is he should divide and conquer the Sanhedrin. Because if he can show that Roman commander that what he believes, they can't even agree about it, that they're fighting about it, then, then the Roman commander will understand that he, you know, he's just like all of them, just fighting about it, and, and he's not really a threat because everybody, nobody agrees. So maybe, one interpretation goes, Paul brings up resurrection because he wants them to fight. It works. <laughs> it works. He, he wants to show the Roman commander how this is just a dispute among the Jews, and the Jews have been arguing about this for hundreds of years, and, and, he, and he should just let Paul go because Paul's not really a threat. That's an interpretation of what's happening here. I don't think that's what's going on. I think, rather, that Paul brings up the resurrection because uh, not to divide the body, but he does it so, as he does everywhere, I can tell, to confront them with the facts about Jesus Christ. So he starts with this central miracle of the resurrection. This is what he does. That's why Paul brings up the resurrection. Again, look over at chapter 26, verse 8. The resurrection is an important part of his defense everywhere. 
chapter 26, verse 8, he does the same thing in chapter 24. Now in chapter 26, again, he says, Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Paul brings up the resurrection because the resurrection is central to Christianity. It's central to what we believe. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then none of this book matters. If he did rise from the dead, this is the most important message in the whole world. And, and uh, oh, this is great. He brings it up in this crowd, right? The Sanhedrin. Paul's standing in the same spot where Jesus was 25 years ago before this same body condemned him to death. There must have been, I, there's good chances that there's somebody in the Sanhedrin who was there that night that Jesus, they, they sentenced him to death. Or if they weren't there, they knew a guy or they were related to one of the guys who was there. And Jesus brings this up. The resurrection, the resurrection. You should keep this in, in mind here. Um, when the disciples started preaching that Jesus was alive, one of the easiest things that these Sanhedrin, these Pharisees, these Sadducees who had opposed them, one of the easiest things that they could have done to shut that whole thing down is to produce the body. Jesus is alive. No, he's not. Here's the body. They didn't produce the body, though. Where was the body? The tomb was close by. It was, it was uh, not very far away. Where was the body? What happened to the body? Why couldn't they produce the body? Why didn't they produce the body? He's pointing to them. You, you didn't do anything about it. You couldn't do anything about it. Resurrection. Keep this in mind because when you interact with people who are not followers of Jesus, you want to talk to them about your faith, but you're afraid, and you're afraid to do it because you're afraid they're going to ask you questions, questions that you can't answer. Um, most of the time, though, actually, they just need you to clarify. Uh, Sam, uh, Scott and I are reading a great book by Sam Crabtree called um, Practical, uh, Practicing Affirmation. It's a wonderful little book. And uh, Sam Crabtree, one at the time, he was talking about a, a time he was talking about someone with someone who's not a follower of Jesus, and he says to him, he said to him, my grammar is flown out the window. He said to him, uh, "You're an atheist. Yes, I am. Tell me about the God you don't believe in." And the atheist started talking and speaking, describing this God, and Sam Crabtree said, "Well, I've got good news for you. I don't believe in that God either." Your view of God is, is not certainly what the Bible teaches. It's not what, what Christian, it's not, it's not the God that Christians worship. Let me tell you about the God that we worship. You're afraid that people are going to ask you questions. They might ask you questions. You don't need to know all of the answers. But here is something to be confident and actually something to be informed about, the resurrection. Don't worry if you can't establish the age of the earth. Don't worry if you can't talk about the process of the canonization of the Bible. Don't worry if you don't have a good answer to where are aliens in the Bible. Don't worry about that. Um, all of these things rise and fall on the resurrection. Everything we believe rises and falls in the resurrection. And you can say to them, where's the body? Where was the body? Why didn't they produce the body? Whenever we talk about the resurrection, I, I like to quote one of my uh, favorite line about the resurrections by a German theologian. His name is Wolfhard Tannenberg. The evidence for Jesus' resurrection, he says, is so strong that nobody would question it except for two things. First, it is a very unusual event. And second, if you believe it happened, you have to change the way you live. 
Paul didn't bring up the resurrection to divide them, but to press them. If, if he had been able to continue, what would he have said? He would have said, Jesus rose from the dead because of, of who he was and the significance of his death. Why did he die as our substitute? You know this, he could say to the Sanhedrin. None of you could prove that he had done anything wrong ever. He lived perfectly before God and perfectly before all of us. That's not a record that you or I could produce. Nobody in this room could produce that record. But in the plan of God, for the sake of love, uh, Jesus offered to take our place at the bar of God's justice. I deserve the death that Jesus died. I don't deserve to be forgiven. But as an expression of his love and his holiness, God presented him as a substitute on our behalf. He paid the penalty we owed, and he rose again. And that resurrection is God's triumphant sign that Jesus' sacrifice has been accepted and is worthy of your confident belief. Paul, I, I have no doubt that Paul would have gotten there if he hadn't been interrupted, if he'd had the chance. It's actually what he does later in one of his other defense speeches. He doesn't get interrupted later, and he goes to the gospel. When Paul had the chance and the circumstances before him, he diverted to the gospel. He always went to the gospel. He renewed his focus on the gospel. Here's a commitment that I want you to encourage you to undertake. I put this in the first person, all right? This commitment. I must see every place I go and every person I meet there as an opportunity to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. I must see every place I go and every person I meet there as an opportunity to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be in a hospital. It might be a school. It might be a concert or a dance recital or McDonald's or a cemetery or a funeral home. Every place I go and every person I meet there is an opportunity for me to represent the Lord Jesus Christ. In hot water, renew your focus on the gospel. Now, secondly here, what else do we do? We have confidence in, God's, in Jesus' plan. We have confidence in Jesus' plan. This is the response to the fear that rises here. I like how this story begins and ends. Did you notice this? The story begins with Ro, uh, the Roman commander, Claudius, he doesn't know who Paul is. He doesn't know what he's done. He doesn't know what he's going to do with Paul. That's how it begins. And it ends with the Lord Jesus, who knows Paul intimately and has a perfect plan for his life. And, and the call here is to, to trust him. And, and this is what settles Paul down. He's going to go to Rome. It's going to enable him to endure two years in a Caesarean prison. We'll get to that soon. Um, it, it enables him to endure when a plot comes against his life. The, these Jews are trying to kill him, but, but they're not, not going to be able to kill him because Jesus said he's going to Rome. The, t the story is told here, verse 11 is here, so that you can read it and you can know whether Jesus appears to you or not, that he is present and that he has a plan. I'm sure it's a minority of people in the room, but I'm going to take a risk and do this anyway. Um, in, in talking about this, the minority people have f familiarity with it. You, you know in recent years that, that uh, comic book heroes have been all over the movie screens, television screens, everywhere you see them, people. Um, I never have really been into comic book characters that much or comic books. Um, I've met a few people in recent years. Uh, Ma Marvel Comics, one of the big, big brands here, has, a, has an organization called S.H.I.E.L.D., S.H.I.E.L.D. is more secret than the NSA and the CIA and the FBI. And, and what they do is uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is to protect the world from 
from danger. And the leader of, of S.H.I.E.L.D. is a man by the name of Nick Fury. Nick Fury, he's smart. He's secretive. He's, he's 12 steps ahead of you. He, he always knows. He always has a contingency plan. And he has a contingency plan for his contingency plan. He's, he's, he's crafty. Well, the other thing that Nick Fury is, is he's secretive. And boy, that's aggravating to people who have to follow him. So his, his, the, they, they always, they wonder, these S.H.I.E.L.D. agents wonder, what is Nick Fury doing? Uh, they found out he has secret plans somewhere, and they wonder, why is this happening? Why won't he tell us more? What is he, what's going on? It's the worst thing about working for Nick Fury, not knowing everything, uh, being confused by his orders. And the characters in these stories, they talk about it all the time. What's going on? I wish we knew. I wish we had more information. Actually, I think that happens a lot in fiction, doesn't it? Sherlock Holmes did some strange things that he never always ex- never explained to Dr. Watson. Dumbledore. What's Dumbledore up to? Harry Potter doesn't know, and he doesn't understand, and sometimes he's discouraged by it. Even Perry Mason, right? Perry Mason did some strange things that must have made Della Street and Paul Drake wonder what was going on. There, now I've hit everybody in every generation, okay? So next I'm going to be talking about the shadow, all right? So if you don't know who that is, ask somebody with a cane. So um, (laughs) can we really trust him? Does, Does he really know what he's doing? Do you ever ask those questions about Jesus? I'm sure you have. Paul did. Sometimes I notice it's interesting that um, these, um, well, Harry Potter talks to Hermione and Ron about his questions about Dumbledore. Dr. Watson can talk to Mrs. Hudson. Della Street and Paul Drake can talk to each other. It's usually, usually in, the, in the talking about their questions and, the, and, and, and their track record, they talk about this. Well, you know, he's always been trustworthy before. He's always had a plan. We've always been able to rely on him. But actually, that, that they encourage one another. Let, let's keep going. Let's keep following this person. I, you know, this growth groups, isn't that what that's about? Can we really trust Jesus? I hope you have somebody around you who can say, yes, we can. Remember, he's always been trustworthy in the past. You really can rely on him. Take courage. Take courage. This is what we do when we're in hot water. Our confidence is in Jesus' presence and in Jesus' plan. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you uh, this morning and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you as we see the, the, the sun streaming down through the slowly changing colors. It reminds us of your promises and your power. Um, how, how the seasons come and the sun rises as a testimony to the fact that you keep your promises. Lord, we confess to you that in this room we have had many, many times in which we have doubted and we've wondered and we've walked in in fear that we haven't confronted ourselves as as your word would encourage us to do. Lord, I pray for the the men and women this morning who are in particular feeling the sting of the hot water that they're in of bereavement or suffering or sickness, discouragement. Lord, would you, according to your kindness, guard them from 
hostility and from fear. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You always know the right thing to say in every situation. Use your word and your people to encourage our weak hearts, our feeble minds. We who are prone to wander and we feel it, would you seal our hearts to follow you faithfully in these diverse situations we're in? Thank you for your mercies. They're new every morning. We will see them tomorrow as the sun rises, Henry, as we follow you. We'll walk by faith. We pray together these things in the Lord Jesus' name.